Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Elena Martellozzo is a criminologist and assistant professor at Middlesex University. Her research includes exploring children and young people's online behaviour, the analysis of sexual grooming and police practice in the area of child sexual abuse. In an innovative and collaborative partnership between operational policing and academic research, she embedded herself into the newly formed London Metropolitan Police's paedophile and high-tech crime unit and was given unprecedented access to a range of documents, staff, facilities, enabling her to view and understand online predators in their natural environment. More recently, in 2016, she co-led a piece of research on behalf of the NSPCC and the Office of the Children's Commissioner on the impact online pornography may be having on our young people. Currently, she's co-leading a research project for the Internet Watch Foundation, evaluating key performance indicators and desired outcomes in safeguarding cyberspace from illegal content. She is the author of Online Child Sexual Abuse, Grooming, Policing and Child Protection in a Multimedia World and co-author of Cybercrime and Its Victims, published in 2016. She is regularly on the TV and in the media, providing expertise on these subjects and in 2016 received the lovely award of Young Italian Talent in the UK. And that was given by the Italian Chamber of Commerce and the Italian Embassy in the United Kingdom. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Elena Martellozzo to this podcast. How are you, Elena? I'm very well, thank you, Cathy. Now, I just want to dwell on the pronunciation of your name because it's important, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about your name and your background. So my name is Elena. That's how we pronounce it. It's obviously an Italian name. Yes, I'm, I'm Venetian, but I've been living in the UK for... 20 years now. So I'm not sure what I am anymore. Well, it's lovely to welcome you. And I'm particularly delighted because I think you're the first criminologist that I've ever interviewed. And everyone will know that I'm a criminologist as well. I know. I've read all about you, Cathy. So it's terribly exciting because sometimes you can feel a bit alone in the world as a criminologist, can't you? <laughs> well, trust me, there are quite a few of us. <laughs> unfortunately I don't spend that much time with them anymore so it's always in my world people are always shocked when you say you're a criminologist I know well it's so nice for me to speak to a like-minded person in that case and one of the other reasons I've been looking forward to this interview is because the stuff that keeps me awake at night is is what you're researching and that is, you know, this relationship, if you like, between pornography and children and young people and what they're getting up to online and who's trying to contact them online and, you know, how we're meant to be educating our children about these areas. And it's just a minefield. And that's why I'm delighted to hear all about your research. Yes. Well, 
I, I always say, you know, I'm a criminologist, of course, and uh, I work in the child protection area, in the child abuse area. And I spent many years looking at the probably the worst things, really, which is related to the sexual abuse of children online. I started really with my doctorate uh, many, many years ago when the internet was still at, uh, at its infancy. And I remember walking in into this room with a lot of police officers working undercover. And we were sitting there and wondering, you know, where is this going to take us to? How many cases are we going to, to deal with? And it just proliferated so, so much. But I always try, when you know, when I speak to parents and children, I try to stay away from that subject because, of course, it is the worst thing that could happen online to young people. And it's probably one of the worst crimes that can really happen in society, in my view, you know, the abuse of, of the innocent. And yet it's certainly something that parents just can't bear to think about because it just seems unreal. And also they don't really want to scare their children by bringing it up. And they shouldn't really. They shouldn't really scare. You know, the, the internet is not <laughs> inhabited by sex offenders and pedophiles hiding in dark corners. Of course, there is a need for some awareness and uh, we need to of course be open to people and to young children that these things can happen but of course because of my research I've just been solely focusing on the worst side but there's so many lovely things about being online and young children engaging so let's focus on that. <laughs> and let's start if I may by talking about the research that you've done with young people which examined their use of pornography and what impact it's had on their view of sex. This is something that comes up all the time in my work. So it's fantastic to hear from you. Tell us a little bit about that research and what you really felt was some of the most interesting things that come out of it. Yes, we, we carried out this research and the aim of the research was to explore the feelings and experiences of children and young people about online pornography. And we were particularly keen to explore those of UK adolescents from the age of 11 to 16. We spoke to more or less 1,070 young children using a various types of, of methods to engage with them. What was interesting was that half of our sample had seen pornography, which did not surprise me. You know, porn's ubiquity is unprecedented. I would go as far as to argue that it's, it's harder to avoid online pornography than to see it. But it was a fascinating piece of research, and I really enjoyed speaking to those young people. They shared so many useful insights with us about, you know, the, how they feel about pornography, why they watch it, how they felt the first time they saw it. And I think that one of the most fascinating, but at the same time alarming result was that pornography seems to have become the default sex educator for a large number of young people, which is concerning me. So viewing pornography is almost routine, especially amongst young boys and young men. So that was probably something that uh, concerned me. So there's a lot of work that we, we can do and parents should be doing in helping them, you know, preparing them to view pornography. So in, in my experience, sometimes some parents are grateful that pornography is there to so-called educate their children because they, they, have no, they, they have no idea where to begin with that discussion. And many, I've certainly met many adult men who've said back in the day, that was how they learned about, 
you know, sexual relations. But then I point out that the nature of pornography is extremely different now. It's consumed differently. It's much more graphic. So there is something there. Sometimes I detect a kind of hesitancy in parents to kind of go down that route of asking, what is the nature of contemporary pornography as opposed to what potentially was around in the 70s and, you know, 60s and 70s? Oh, it's so different now, you know, it's developed and it's developed as society has developed, it's developed as technology has developed. So, you know, there's not such a thing as a, you know, a healthy type of pornography or an ethical type of pornography if you, you know, if you go online. That's the problem. And it's it's concerning me that parents are quite content that their children, uh, some parents, I should say, view pornography. So it's, you know, they, they can see things that they don't have to discuss. And, you know, adults are often, parents are often unaware of the issues and they feel ill-equipped, unable or unwilling to have those conversations. And I appreciate that, you know. The subject of pornography is so varying, so controversial. You know, you've got traditionally opponents of pornography that claim that pornography may damaging effects on beliefs, moral values and behaviours, etc. And then you've got the proponents of pornography that have claimed the opposite, that pornography may benefit the individual by enhancing the sex life and contributing to knowledge about sex. So it's important for us to, you know, to research this topic so we can synthesize in the most prevailing and theoretical positions and present empirical evidence, which come directly from the voices of young people. And that's why I enjoyed this project so much. So can we just talk about the content of pornography? Because a lot of people listening will never have been on a pornographic site for good reason. And many of them will have, but there's no one to discuss that with. So if an 11-year-old is using a site which is extremely popular, like Pornhub, which I believe has billions of users, and teenage boys are the largest consumers, it seems, of of that pornography on that site, What are they likely to be looking at and seeing? Do we know about what is it that's going on in those worlds? Well, we don't know what each individual young person may view. But what I heard from the young people and the way that they described certain things that they've seen have shocked me. I didn't know about certain types of sex, which I've rather not described to you. And they were talking to me as if, you know, some of them were shocked by what they've seen. You know, people that had no limbs, for example, engaging in sex or all sorts of things, Cathy, that could be quite traumatising and shocking, particularly for a young person that has not received, you know, an appropriate type of sexual education, who is not cognitively developed, who is not sexually active. It could be very detrimental in my view. And I think it's terribly sad in a way, without sounding like Mary Whitehouse, that someone, you know, may not, a child may not, or a young teenager may not have even had their first kiss and they've seen something potentially graphic and even violent on some of those forums. Because from what I've heard from parents who have accessed what their 14-year-old has been watching or whatever it is, some of the material is graphic and violent. And so it might be, for example, you know, pornography associated with rape or which is, seems to be prolific on some of those sites or a sort of, a, you know, a, 
fantasies that involve uh, violence or imply that kind of connection and association before a child's even had their first kiss? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, our major concern was, of course, to protect those children who are not prepared to watch pornography, who have not had the first kiss, who do not know what sex is. Coming across something so violent where there is, you know, beating, slapping involved. I mean, how can we really, how can that child have a a positive or a healthy view of a sexual relationship? And that was really our focus, you know. It was, let's, let's produce something that can really help protect those children who do not choose to see pornography but stumble across pornography. And one of the things I pulled out from your research was one 13-year-old boy commenting to his friend that he'd started to treat girls like he sees in the pornographic world. And I think he said something along the lines of nothing major, just a slap here and there. From your research, how is pornography impacting on boys' views of girls, but also on the way that girls feel about themselves? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, trust me, the idea of emulating behavior was certainly explored in our research. The idea that things seen in pornography could be tried out did emerge frequently during the, uh, the interviews with young people, particularly with the older groups. So we asked the question, you know, from watching pornography, what did you learn? What, what do you think the risks are? And many of them said, you know, people may try things that can be harmful. They want to copy what they see. And the result was, going back to your question, that a significant number of young people reported that online pornography has given them ideas or wanted to act out sexual practices, particularly with the older groups and particularly with boys, which is, again, concerning. So whilst the boys felt that pornography was kind of a a, a teaching tool, if you like, so they gave them idea of what to try out, girls felt really indignant, humiliated, and felt almost like that they had to respond to accommodate their partners, and generally not wanting to do the acts that their partners initiate from porn. But isn't that utterly depressing that in 2020 we may have, you know, young girls, teenage girls in positions of being disempowered in those early romantic relationships? Oh, it's very sad. And if that's what really pornography does to these young people, you, you know, you start thinking, well, they shouldn't really be seen it. It shouldn't be available to them at all. And yet in this country, I think the government flirted with the idea of putting in some sort of age verification, you know, process into the, you know, the consumption of pornography. It didn't really have any legs at the end. But I just wanted to run past you what I understand that really it's like the Stairgate argument. You know, you can put in all sorts of bans at home and age verification processes, but If a child or a young teenager wants to access something, most of them are technologically brilliant and can do that. And that really the only hope we have is the relationship that we have with our children, which should be ideally a relationship of trust and transparency and not being afraid to have these difficult chats. Yes, I was very excited about this age verification and I was really hoping for it to work out and I'm, I'm still hopeful. 
I think it could potentially work if it removes the possibility for young children to stumble across pornography. I'm all in favour of that. But absolutely, we need to build trust with young people and we need to certainly prepare them for what they could see and they could stumble across, that they could, you know, when searching for material, what they could see, just explain to them, you know, this is what it represents. And how are they stumbling across it? What are the mechanisms by which that occurs? Well, the, the young people told us that uh, there's so many different ways. Either they are shown by other friends, so, you know, via WhatsApp text, or they receive something that they weren't expected to receive. You know, everybody's on, on iPhones and they've got their WhatsApps. And so you may receive messages that you weren't prepared to receive and there it pops up. Or just through just simple searches, it comes up. Or these days, you might be on certain social medias and uh, you find that other children shares materials that they've, uh, they've managed to obtain. There's many different methods. Uh, there's not just you know, one way of stumbling across pornography. And my concern is, is this, is you know, if you're not prepared, if you're not expecting it, but you receive it, it can be quite uh, harmful in my view. And parents are always asking me, at what point should we initiate these conversations? You know, if it's never cropped up and they think their 10 or 11 year old has never viewed pornography or seen pornography. And I always say, well, do you want to be on the front foot or do you want their friends to tell them and show them these things? So I think it's very important that parents, you know, are able to find the language and potentially even the metaphor to, to say to their children that there are things that can affect the way your brain feels about some things, you know, that, that can be shocking online. And we have to be very discerning about what we read and see and what we open when it's sent to us. I agree. Uh, I think, you know, the conversation rather than be focused around pornography should really focus on consent, respect, intimacy. And this should start at a very young age, obviously, you know, in an age appropriate manner. Just to give you an example, I was watching Indiana Jones with my, my eldest son just the other day. And towards the end of the film, Harrison Ford kisses a beautiful woman, as in all Indiana Jones movies. And I could see that my little one was covering his face with embarrassment. So I, I challenged the situation and explained that kissing is symbolic of love and it's a beautiful act between two people that love each other like mommy and daddy do. And he looked at me and smiled. So, you know... It doesn't have to be around the aggressiveness and the harshness of some of the horrendous materials that uh, we come across online. It's, again, around mutual consent or respect. And I think it's about, as well, trying to move away from, from certain types of uh, beliefs and, oh, that's harmful and therefore I don't want to talk about this or, you know, my children won't watch pornography or if they do, they sort themselves out because everybody did and we did when we were younger. But I think now it's so available, so freely available that it's important to have these conversations. You know, I also have parents asking me advice on their children who are watching porn and I wish there was a healthy type of pornography I could direct them to. Sadly, even depictions of consensual sex may perpetrate the sexual objectification of women and reinforce other sexist social norms. So my advice is really to focus on the conversation of what constitutes a healthy relationship 
and that what is depicted is the, in the images is not how people engage sexually. Similarly, I think it's important to have a conversation about the actors depicted in the images, who are generally, you know, males who have been chosen for the muscular type physique because they have large penises, and women who are shaved with large breasts, who are often subjected to pain. So we need to talk about these things. And I expect educators and parents to be able and aware of the harms that pornography may have on young people and fosters children's and young people healthy sexualities. And what you're making me reflect on is, you know, and I know that this is something that Professor Deans in America talks about, Gail Deans, I think, but yeah. the pornification of our culture, you know, the, the ladies with the large breasts and all the rest of it. I mean, it is prolific, that type of image. It's been a, an image that has been val- validated, encouraged by reality television, this this perfect form um, that that women or, or young women, some of them will try and emulate. So I think there's so much going on here that needs to be talked about, even mocked, you know, within family life. That you know, what are what are our expectations? You know, for for, for how you know how do you how I mean, even a, a program like Love Island, there's an opportunity within family life to explore what what makes a a good relationship how is it appropriate to be treated this this idealization of particular body types it's all mixed up isn't it it's all mixed up and we're all surrounded by body images that are not really the reflection of reality or normality and you know during the research we were speaking to both boys and girls and boys feel inept because maybe they're not large or maybe because they cannot last as long or because they're worried about, you know, what would be having sex with a girl. And girls at the same time, they're concerned about their body image. You know, am I too thin? Am I too large? My breasts too big? Should I shave? Should I behave in certain ways? So absolutely, you know, we, we're bombarded by those kind of images that are not really, in my view, healthy. So we need to challenge our, uh, what, what, we, what we see and how it should be perceived. I, I don't know if you'd agree, but I'd love your opinion on it. I think it's very important that parents talk about their own relationship autobiography, if you like, and talk about their own experiences and to be proactive in that regard. So, for example, with my 14 year old, you know, I, I now bring up the subject of, of my first kiss at 13 and what it was like. And he's not shying away from the conversation because there's a big appetite to you know, if, if if he's not chatting with me about that, who else has he got to talk to? And and just to bring up these little subjects of first kisses, the things that might occupy them, you know, when they're when they're thinking. And also I've noticed that he's, you know, he's watching the whole series of friends, which you and I would have watched, you know, in the 90s and enjoyed, which seems so innocuous now. (laughs) But within that, there are lots of relationships going on. And I find that 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 program a really good springboard for conversations about relationships. So we talk about Joey, the character who's quite proactively chatting women up. And we've talked about whether that hit that's a a healthy approach that he's had because so much in that program is very outdated now as well in terms of what we would consider to be appropriate behavior. So I think parents have an amazing opportunity to to begin with those sorts of programs, you know, and really use them as springboards for, for further chat. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we as parenting is also shaping and changing. And I, you know, I, I totally agree that having these open conversations about, you know, what is a good relationship or not a good relationship and why, how people meet and why they're not together anymore and why they split up, what was missing in the relationship. These are all small conversations which are important for children to hear. And surely children are curious. I mean, I can see my son asking me all the time, did you have a boyfriend before daddy? And, you know, why not sharing? And absolutely, let's talk about this because it's the foundation of a strong, healthy sexual life relationship in the future. And do you think that, I know parents ask, I'm sure you this all the time and me, but should we have a slightly differentiated approach when raising either boys or girls? Because I'm raising boys only and my priorities are sort of giving the female perspective on those early relationships and, you know, making sure that they understand how a a girl might feel or how, you know, talking about themes like sexting and bringing it all up, but really emphasizing, you know, empathy and understanding what makes a healthy relationship and, you know, all those different things. and, and rec- But if you're raising a daughter, I think my emphasis would be much more on, I don't know, sort of protecting them from pressure to do particular things or, you know, there's an assumption there that perhaps the boys are the ones always pressurizing the girls. And I don't know if that's sort of accurate. I don't know. Like you, Kathy, I'm raising two boys and uh, it's a great experience because I grew up in a family full of girls. And for the first time, I'm coming across boys who are behaving in a way that I never behaved. And they're interested in things that I wasn't interested in. So there is clearly a difference between boys and girls. I think one piece of advice that I would give to parents is it's certainly not to panic, not to panic about, you know, the way that in, they engage online, as long as there is, again, an open relationship, both online and offline. You know, we need to be part of their online lives because young people are online and that's the way to communicate. And sexting, you know, that might be, again, the way that particularly during this unprecedented situation of lockdown, young people are not allowed to meet and socialize normally unless they are in the same school bubble. So I would not be surprised if sexting may be increasing and becoming a normal way of communicating sexually. Now, you've said that you find many schools unprepared to conduct research or conversations about some of the things that we've been talking about, Elena. So what do you think can be done to change this attitude? And why is it important for dialogue about these issues to happen within school? Yes, a number of schools were not comfortable for us to conduct this sensitive research with their pupils in their schools. Uh, The reasons given were mainly ethical. They may be worried that speaking in schools about pornography will encourage students to seek it, although there's no evidence that researchers asking adolescents about pornography encourages its use. Or the other reason was for religious constraints. So we knocked at many schools' doors in rural areas, in religious schools, and the answer was, uh, yeah, it's interesting, but no thank you. And I can understand these tensions. So really, going back to your question, What I do think that could be done is to change this attitude and to first really convince and educate schools and the parents before engaging with the young children that discussing pornography honestly and 
openly can be one of the most important things that educators can do to help young people navigate their way into adulthood, in my, in my view. I think one of the challenges for educators is that you can't actually view the content while you're discussing it. So they end up in positions where they come up with a little case study and children discuss it in class or teenagers debate a few issues around it, but without actually engaging with the content and being able to be there teaching them that sort of media literacy, how to be a critic, how to think critically about what you're viewing and seeing, it's a bit more challenging than a traditional lesson. I agree. I agree. And uh, there's a lot of work that we need to do to ensure that we put together the relevant materials that can enable educators to work with young people. I've done a lot of research around what's available online, and I think our colleagues in Australia and New Zealand have really got it. They they managed to ensure that you know pornography now is part of the curriculum, and this is really what I would like to see here in the UK as well. Because pornography, let's be honest, is not going to disappear. It is, and it will continue to be a powerful influencing factor in many people's lives, including that of young people. So we need to change the way that we approach the topic of pornography. And in my view, if we present pornography to young people in a kind of a violence prevention manner, we can support them to critique its messages about men, women, power, pleasure, aggression, and can assist them to instead choose relationships and sexuality that privilege and eroticize equality, safety, respect, consent, and so on. So it's really about talking about healthy relationships and, you know, versus unhealthy relationships. And I think it's a very good idea to tune into what children are and young people are already interested in. So they already have a great appetite for particular celebrities, many of whom demonstrate unhealthy relationships, in my opinion. And some of those can be discussed as case studies, can't they? Absolutely. And that's one of the messages that young people told us. They'd like, they would like to see celebrities as case studies to be part of their education, sex education. You know, young children are interested in people getting together, people developing together, people getting married, and they want to see this included in their learning. They were very critical around the way that sex is taught in school. They even probably found it quite laughable, particularly the older ones, you see. And that's why sometimes young people, just, they just turn into pornography to, to learn more from it, because that's what they want to hear and they want to find out. And really what you're describing is a kind of a, we need a, a bigger approach to look at the umbrella of relationships in general And what it means to be attracted to someone, how it feels, what it feels like to fall in love, have your first kiss, how you know, you know, your body is ready for that kind of sexual relationship and how to protect yourself and the relationship from potentially pernicious influences. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's also important to, you know, not to limit access, but to to build resilience in children that uh, to that potentially harmful effect that, you know, pornography uh, may have when they see it. So, yes, uh, young people who participated in the research highlighted the importance of education 
and they were, for the first time, having worked with so many young people that were so talkative, so engaging and so interested. They even thanked us to, to speak to them and to listen to them and to create a space for them to be able to, to, to share with us uh, how they felt. And I really um, enjoy telling parents about the term porn resilient because the term porn resilience, it, in, it means that it, we're not going to deny the existence of pornography, nor are we going to be in denial that our children will never view it. But we're creating a sign of a protective element there that we're, we're, we're giving them the tools to be able to critique it to be able to be, you know, psychologically self-sufficient and to be able to, you know, decipher and make good decisions about what they might see and view. And would you agree that it's unhealthy? We, We don't want our children having these discussions without us. We need to be in that space. Yes, we need to be part of that and we need to address this issue in a safe, multifaceted way which eventually may enhance young people's ability to challenge and engage by themselves with pornography as critical consumers. That's what we want. So would you say that schools on the whole in this country are not really teaching that sort of digital literacy particularly well? I'm not, I'm not arguing that. What I'm, what I'm arguing, and this is mainly coming from young people really from, from the research, is they want this subject to be more critical, more real in a way, less abstract, and they they want the the issue of pornography to also be part of their teaching and the learning. And I know that the project, the research that you've done, did look at children starting from age eleven, and you've mentioned you know it's difficult to engage with younger children in, in schools for ethical reasons. And I think you've said before that more work needs to be done with younger children. So when do you think, you know, how how should those conversations begin? Where should they begin? And what are your tips for parents starting very tricky chats with younger children? Well, it's a very difficult subject and I accept that. But we also need to accept that younger children or younger and younger, are are online. So as I suggested before, we need to start having these conversations around consent and mutual respect from a very young age, as young as, you know, as, as young as when they start asking questions, simply, you know, when we watch TV with them, that's a good, uh, as you mentioned before, you know, some, some serious TV, some images that we see online, or some films that we might come across, there are some sexual images, and we can't run away from those. And those could be the good opportunity to, t- to start talking about it rather than just, you know, hiding away. Well, my 11-year-old is obsessed with The Simpsons. So we've been talking recently about whether Marge and Homer have a good relationship. <laughs> and Homer Simpson is quite an interesting character, you know. So I think we just have to tune into what their world looks like and use the, you know, and, and use those opportunities, as you suggest, for, you know, talking about wider issues but potentially not using adult language so you know with him I've been saying you know even when we're getting ready for bed or something you know we make clear that we always reiterate that no one is allowed to touch your body in particular places not even you know no one and and just reiterating you know helping them understand what's allowed and not allowed and and creating that sense of body boundaries 
Yes, and uh, you know this goes back to the research that I've I've done, you know, with uh, sex offenders and young people. It's so important to, yes, keep this conversation open, use the right language. I always encourage as well to use body parts language rather than you know make up names because you never know. It's important that children recognize different parts of their body, and I use medical terms with them and and like you you know I take any opportunity to to talk about healthy relationships mine are into Peppa Pig and uh, and uh, my my little one often tells me that you know daddy pig is not really well treated by the family because everybody's <laughs> laughing at him and and I do say well you know you're making a good point but I explain that the program is also to have a, a laugh but it's not right to laugh at people and it's not healthy to you know to to take the make out of adults uh, particularly between a couple or so unless you know it's a joke so any opportunity it's a good opportunity to have these conversations and any opportunity should be a good opportunity to teach children about mutual respect but also to respect their own bodies and to keep their body to themselves and to teach them what can, is allowed and what shouldn't be allowed because what we want ultimately is for them to come to us when they feel uncomfortable we can't be with them all the time at one point you know they're gonna leave those doors and go to school and be to their open big word but we want them to be able to feel comfortable and feel comfortable to to come to us and to tell us I've seen this and I was upset I didn't feel it was right, uh, or that boy wasn't very kind because of this or because of that, and it, that's that's a very healthy start, I think. the The other thing, of course, that's inevitable now is a lot of the dialogue happening in these early love relationships happens online, so they have to navigate the use of emojis, the the you know trying to understand what is meant by particular phrases or the way someone has put something across online so it's very very different isn't it than what we probably went through just sort of seeing a you know a boy on the school bus and waiting for him there was no access to mobile technology so the relationship is now can be much more intense in those early days it is. And, you know, we, we need to learn from our children. My kids are my little teachers, I call them, because there's so many things that I don't know. And I'm sure there'll be more and more things that I won't know. So I do need them. I need them to be my critical friends who who teach me what to do, how to learn. And together we just start this big journey. And I think one of the things that I find quite you know, sad when I read the research is that it seems to be the children who are the most vulnerable in our society may be more susceptible to, you know, seeing things that that are harmful or being preyed upon by those online predators that we referred to earlier. Is that the case from from your research? Has that been echoed by that? Well, yes. You know, those children that are less resilient, those children that perhaps come from difficult background and therefore they're more needy they are likely to be the most uh, let's say looked at online but again you know we need to think positively as I said before the internet is not inhabited by sex offenders although we do need to be aware that they're not fictional either so there are a lot of little signs that we need to watch out for and this is what I say 
to parents all the time, you know, don't be worried if your child is happy and is talking to you very openly and is looking, let's say, engaging and normal. But there are some some little signs that we need to to look out for. So, for example, spending long hour, long hours online, especially at night. Phone calls from people that they don't know, unsolicited gifts, or, you know, children turning away from the parent when he or she walked into the room, hiding phones, or changing behavior during, you know, family activities like dinner and lunches, etc. So there are signs that could perhaps suggest that our child is somehow troubled by something. And we need to always, you know, observe these things. But this is, you know, it's always been the case online and offline, but even more so because the online world is a huge word. And uh, sometimes they enter these words and we don't know in which corner they are. So we have to be vigilant and aware that these things can happen. Now, I'm sure you're asked this all the time, as am I, about when when's a good age to get your child a mobile phone? Or if I get my child a mobile phone, what should I be, you know, concerned about or worried about? And I'd love to know your opinion on that before I suggest mine. I don't know if there is a right age. My son is not even eight. He's already asking for one. And as parents, we feel pressurized sometimes because some other parents who we respect may buy mobile phones to their children and we think, goodness, maybe I have to do the same now. And uh, I'm not quite there yet with my little ones, but I, I dread the moment that it will arrive. So what I'm doing currently, I'm, uh, I've been proactive, I mean, part because of the job that I do, but I, I'm updating myself all the time. I, I'm on TikTok, I'm on Instagram, I'm on all these kind of games because I want to learn what it's like playing in this kind of social networking sites because I know that my, my son will want to soon be there and use them. Absolutely. So it's being part of their world. And I think what I I didn't let 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 I didn't, you know, allow my 13 year old to have a phone till he was 13 and a half, mainly because I didn't, you know, if I could get away with it for that long, it was good. But then we had a big, massive chat before he was given the phone. And he sort of had to agree what our family values were, our family digital values. I talked to him about pornography. I told him that other boys would, would you know, try and show him stuff. And that's all that happens a lot. And I sort of just filled him in, at which point he then said, look, you know, let's look at my phone together. So his phone is an open book, you know, and we talk about what we see and read on it and we help him. It is absolutely astonishing how much parental input it requires to to say, listen, that wasn't an appropriate comment and this is why, or you have to think about how you engage in that sort of digital etiquette. It takes quite a lot of hard work, but I think it's worth it to enable your child to become a sort of digital citizen, a good digital citizen. Absolutely. And it's important that, you know, they do become digital citizens. Otherwise, we we exclude them. At what age is it appropriate? I don't think, you know, there is the right answer. It depends also on the maturity of a child. It depends on the engagement of parents with children. And I think, you know, what you're doing is exactly what I will be doing when the time comes. Having these conversations is key. 
having them when they're very young, you know, talking about values. So, you know, bullying takes place everywhere, sadly. And we know that when it's online, it's even easier to be a bully or to be bullied. So, you know, to to start this conversation when they're not online, just to teach them about values and respect about other children, it's key because that will be completely transferable when they are digital citizens. So what you're doing is exactly what I will be doing, I hope. And one of the lovely things I think I read, I was interested to read in your research, is this sort of the ability to be anonymous online. It's very enticing and empowering for for a young teenager, isn't it? It is. Uh, It's empowering for anyone, really. You know, and we know that sometimes, even in the adult world, what we say online, we probably would never say face to face to other people. You know, we tend to be a little bit, let's say, more direct on uh, on messages, emails, etc. And I find that some people, particularly young people, their way of having relationships is all via text because they would probably struggle to to communicate face to face these days. And I, and you know, I haven't done this in my research, but I see it. I see it happening all the time. And was it the case? I think I read from your research that boys are slightly have a greater tendency towards that disinhibition you know that they're more likely to think you know that that they're just less inhibited online if you like well yes that's what transpired from the research but I think we need to dig in a little bit more on this kind of gender differences because I'm sure there are and uh, boys are less forward uh, let's be honest they're they're very happy in their own skin and you know they're happy to type away and and they enjoy perhaps the idea of being more anonymous but we definitely need more evidence on that. And, uh, you know, bringing it back to your position as a criminologist, we know that that online anonymity, it's very appealing for abusers, as I think some of your 2015 research pointed out. Yes. Anonymity is one of, uh, let's say, the beasts, I would say, of of the internet for sex offenders. You know, a lot of uh, the the groomers that I've come across in my studies, they they're anonymous. They they hide their real identity. Often they have more than one identity. They disguise behind different names or photographs. I've come across sex offenders pretending to be young people, entering spaces of young people to be able to get access to them. I've come across sex offenders pretending to be parents and trying to engage with other parents in order to get to their children. I've come across sex offenders who, the the other end of the spectrum, were very open about who they were and they're very open about claiming that, yeah, they enjoy children and uh, they enjoy them physically and sexually. So there's so many different typologies and so many different behaviours on this field, uh, which is quite frightening, really. And do you feel, you know, most people have no idea what we're doing as a country, you know, in terms of, I think I read the National Crime Agency said there were approximately 300,000 people who are interested in sexual offending against children in this country. But, you know, or do you think, what, what would you like to see perhaps that needs to happen to protect children more in the online space, you know, I know we're probably doing a lot behind the scenes and all the rest of it, but what would you, what, what's on your kind of wish list? 
Well, I should first say that I'm very proud to, to live here. The UK is one of the strongest countries in terms of protecting children online. So much that they've done and so much that they help other countries to, to learn, really, to teach. They teach, they learn. They've, they're amazing what they do. In terms of wish lists, what would I like? I think more awareness. There's a lot of work going on as well behind awareness raising campaigns, a lot of the work that has been done by the CIOP, the Child Exploitation Online Protection Centre, the IWF as well, the Internet Watch Foundation are doing amazing work in terms of removing indecent images of children and making the internet a safe place. Uh, what can we do? I think you know, perhaps we need to certainly work more with sex offenders who have been arrested and have potentials to reoffend. So work with them in terms of rehabilitate them so they can stay away from offending further and continue really to raise awareness and to work with young people because the way sex offending works online, again, is shaped by technology and changes constantly. So we need to keep abreast of what happens. One of the most interesting things that I've noticed is uh, you've mentioned that kind of openness that some predators will, will be very open about their interest in children online. And I've noticed on the TikTok app that, you know, young girls, very young girls will be sort of using sexualized dances or dressed in a very sexualized manner. And adult men will literally comment on, you know, encouraging them to behave even more in that space, literally in public. And I think that's fascinating. There's a kind of a, that that is quite depressing, but equally what's positive is those online spaces are being policed by other parents, by children, by young people saying, oh, they, I recognize this as weird behavior and I'm going to, you know, do something about it. So it's interesting, isn't it? Indeed. And I always talk very positively about, not about online predators, of course, but for sex offenders to be online and for, for the police to be able to monitor their behavior undercover or, you know, openly, has given us the opportunity to really study sex offenders' behaviour, which 20 years ago, we really didn't know much about their behaviour. All we knew was coming from victims and victims that would have spoken about their sexual offences years later in adulthood. Now we see them operating live, if you like, and uh, we have learned so much about sex offending behaviour in the past 20 years that has really helped police practice, has helped legislation and has helped keeping children safe by being open about this issue and to talk about these issues. We have so many now, so many online chats or online forums where children can go to for help. That's right. And some of the organizations that you've mentioned, the Internet Watch Foundation, fantastic. CEOP, these, these should be, you know, institutions, organizations that all families need to familiarize themselves with. Indeed. And, you know, the NSPCC are offering support to children and Childline and Childnet and so many. And we all need to be familiar with this, not only because they have a lot to teach us, but also because if something happens, we need to know where to go. 
Now, I've kept you a long time on this podcast because it's such an interesting topic, but I do what we all want to know what new and interesting projects you're working on at the moment that are interesting and you're excited about and that we can look forward to. <laughs> yes, I'm working on a few projects that are very interesting. One that has just been funded by the College of Policing will evaluate a stalking tool that is now piloted in a number of UK police forces. You know, recent data suggests that the lockdown has contributed to the increasing of stalking and harassment. So I'm very excited to contribute to something so meaningful that can prevent stalking from occurring. So that's one project. I'm also leading a police constable degree, which enables police officers to receive practical on-the-job learning alongside the academic theory. Obviously, I lead on the theoretical side. And we have over 150 police officers on the program. And again, this really excites me as it gives me the opportunity to educate police officers who are there to protect us from crime and deviance. So I'm really, I'm really excited. And such Brilliant, critical work. It's just amazing. And I know you published a book in 2013, which was online child sexual abuse, grooming, policing and child protection in the multimedia world. And my question to you was, do you feel like what's in that book it needs to be updated in 2020 or is it still entirely relevant or is there something, are you working on a, another edition of it? What have we learned since 2013? So that book is definitely still relevant, particularly the theoretical side. Policy techniques have definitely evolved and developed, so that section perhaps needs to be updated. Since then, I've also published another book on cybercrime and its victims. So it looks at different types of online victimization that young children come across. So we talk about bullying in this book. We talk about harassment. We talk about child abuse, sadly. So what we learned is that, you know, crime, generally speaking, is in a constant state of flux. It's constantly changing. It's, of course, something that, dare I say, we create, we define. So it's important to keep up with how crime is shaping in this kind of very developed technological world. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to keeping up to date with all of your amazing work, which... It's just inspirational and so badly needed. And just for people listening, it might be people working in schools or GPs or parents. How can they stay in touch with what's going on in your world, Elena? There's many ways really to be in touch. I'm, I'm a big user of Twitter. I use it professionally where I tweet about latest research, new webinars. I'm now organising a webinar on behalf of uh, the DCMS and UCAS, where I sit in the evidence group. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of interesting podcasts like yours and uh, webinars that are directed to parents to support them and to give them space to ask questions. So join me on Twitter and you'll be able to follow what happens currently and what's going on in the digital media world. Thank you so much. And I hope it's not the last time that we speak. And thank you on behalf of all parents for working so hard in, in your own way to keep children safe online. Thank you. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com 
Parents and teachers in tooled up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the tooled up site. <laughs>